Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Oh, what can we say? Welcome to Homo Sapiens. My name is Will Young. My name's Christopher Sweeney. Except you're wearing a WY cap, Chris Sweeney. I am wearing a WY cap. Why is that? Because I haven't sold many of them, so I've got boxes in my house. <laughs> what a week this week. We've had so many people emailing in. Let me keep on going, Chris. I'm going to make it through this podcast if it kills me. I've had a long drive from Cornwall. Planes are going overhead. Let me paint the scene to you. It's, what's it called again? Just a minute. It's just a minute. It's just a minute. <laughs> Let's try it. Now, Ready, steady. Christopher Sweeney, you have 60 seconds if you need it on the subject, which is leopard print cushions. Starting now. Leopard print cushions always makes me think of Primrose Hill, the likes of Meg Matthews and Noel Gallagher, people who were involved in Britpop. Remember that scene? Wasn't it quite a thing? You'd have a silver sofa and a leopard print cushion with some other things like Sadie Frost up the road. <laughs> Hark! Oh. That was so good! Thank you! Oh, Christopher Sweeney went for 29 seconds. William Young on leopard print cushions. Leopard print cushions. Well, my... My... Oh. <laughs> Repetition it's of really my... Hard. <laughs> and the point goes to Christopher Sweeney, which means you are this week's winner of just a minute! I don't like losing. Oh. You should be able to lose. You've embarrassed me, which leads me on. Did I embarrass you? No, you didn't. Which leads me on. That's all right. Leads me on to the topic (laughs) of this week. Just leave it. Um, (laughs) The topic of this week, which is Shame. shame. Coming up this week, we sit down with Matthew Todd, the former editor of Attitude magazine. He's written a book. It's called Straight Jacket, How to Be Gay and Happy. I love that title. Me too. Matthew's book is a big read. It Mm. is a full on surgical dissection of shame and and using himself as you know, using his experience the corpse as the corpse yes but still living Matthew I think what he's done is amazing and I do think that's it's going to be a seminal work I think it will be used as a study book you know it's that level of intellect this therapist said to me well of course you feel all these terrible things you're gay and that was such a slap in the face I'm so confronted that, that someone would say that and then he went on to explain the fact that because I was gay, it would have meant that I would have grown up in shame, being shamed by society, being shamed by family and friends. Um, conversation with Matthew Todd is coming up. Top five things that you liked about Matthew's interview. His honesty. Oh, yeah. He's not afraid to get on in there. So his tenacity in really getting to the finer detail. 
to be honest, I felt like I really enjoyed being in the Attitude sort of boardroom. Yes, in that's Attitude when we did magazine. the interview. And what did he do as well, which I thought was very sweet? Because they have all the posters around of all their old covers and he put the poster of you in the room as if it was always there. I'm poofing my hair. Yeah. That was a big deal, by the way. Can I just say, my first Attitude cover, my publicists were all about not making it too gay. Really? Now I remember it. I also remember doing a shot for GQ because I won a Style Award. God knows why, because I had... Sister, you've I had got a, some threads. No, I had a Come mullet on. in an old tweed jacket. Um, <laughs> and literally, they did a shoot. We've and gone I was, full circle. <laughs> I was wearing just pants. And my body then... Well, I like my body now. But it was... I look back, I'm like... I look like I'm carved from stone. Mm. And um, the publicist went mental when that because it was Polaroid then, so they'd show the Polaroid and she'd gone out to take a phone call. She came back and I was like, bring it on. I'm young and I want to show off my body. Mm. And she was like, no, no, it looks gay. I was wearing a sun visor, but my body looked great. I'll show you the, um, she said you I'll show you the Polaroid. She said you look gay. I think she probably said it looked a bit camp. Well, Adam Lambert was on RuPaul's What's the Tea podcast I was listening to, and he was saying the record company told him that the cover of his record was way too gay. Really bad, that. I mean, I remember doing Leave Right Now, and they wanted me to record it five times, re-record it, because the guy said he sounds too gay. The chairman. No. Yeah, the chairman then said I, I sounded too gay. Isn't that awful? My producer told me. That is such a weird... I know. Thank God we live in different times. You should release the original where they thought you sounded too gay. I'm here, just like I said. Oh, you can't touch me, boys. <laughs> Look at the mocking here. <laughs> Though it's breaking every rule, I've uh, oh, penises. <laughs> <laughs> Someone's got a salami. <laughs> I don't know why I've gone sort of northern. Why have I gone northern? <laughs> Bong, bong, bong. Welcome to... Crazy Week. Looney Bin Week. <laughs> <laughs> Nut jobs. Now, we say that with jest. These know. are just some words that are used bandied around about mental health issues. Yes. And I actually think it's quite pertinent that we laughed because it suggests how it's just embedded. Prejudice against mental health is embedded in... Yes, and I always have a theory about this, mm-hmm. that it's codependence. Ultimate codependence. Define codependence for me because I never quite understand it. Okay, codependence is relying on others for how you feel. So if Joe Bloggs comes up to me and is feeling really angry. So Joe, isn't it? If he comes up and he's angry and I, I'm not in control of my anger, so it starts triggering me. So I don't want to hear it. Mm-hmm. So I block it off. Mm-hmm. So the idea of we've interviewed Matthew Todd talking about shame and some of the things he was saying was, well, how is it going to be received in the gay community? In my opinion, the people that won't like it, so like, oh, this is just so damning, are people that can't cope with their shame. Right. You know what I mean? So codependence is a lack of boundaries to be able to handle one's own emotions that come up from being around someone else. Now, codependence in relationships mm-hmm. is very much, again, one's mood relies on how your partner's mood is. Mm -hmm. So if your partner's frantic, you know, I might be frantic as well because he's frantic, Mm -hmm. you know, or she's frantic. Yeah. Let me go shopping. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, where are you going? What are you going to get? (laughs) Oh, I don't know. I want to go and get, I always want to buy linen. Antique linen. Antique. I've got a story to tell you. Go on. Um, I've been in Cornwall, as you know, Mm -hmm. and 
I went to the antiques fair that we went to. Do you remember? I remember that we went to a dog show that was really oh yeah, that a was rubbish dog show, and there was like one dog there, and it was mangy. Yeah, and I worried that we were suddenly going to be like coursing with hairs and oh, or it felt a bit dogging actually. The yeah, vibe. <laughs> it was on the mall. Oh, so did it say dog show or dogging? Yeah, it did it have was, that vibe, didn't it? Well, it was pitch black, and there were lots of <laughs> headlights. And I was just wearing Wellington boots and nothing else. What, why did you keep on flashing the headlights? Because I felt the cold feel of the bonnet on my chest. <laughs> I thought, this isn't crap. Chris, let's get out of here. <laughs> As you clung to the bonnet. Just go, go. Where are you, Will? <laughs> Your ass flips up against the windscreen. Oh, gee, no one needs to see that, Chris. I can't see a thing. <laughs> um, so I went to that antiques fair that we went to on the Royal Cornwall Showground. Uh, oh, shout yeah. out to my homies um, and I bought I basically did all of my favourite things I bought a trunk which is going in the sitting room there oh I saw the um, I bought four outdoor chairs already got 12 lovely I know <laughs> as, I, as I look out there's more chairs and garden and um, <laughs> my sister came down with the kids uh, it definitely lovely. makes me rethink kids really well it's full on I actually did a recording oh well okay this is a really funny thing Maxwell who's six wanted to immediately he was like I'm sleeping in William's bed I actually recorded it then it felt a bit wrong he then had a meltdown before bed sitting at the bottom of the stairs we're in the sitting room and all I could hear was I don't want to sleep with William he gets really sweaty at night (laughs) (laughs) and he just kept on saying it okay Maxwell back up do you know what I mean I was Mm. like you wanted to sleep in the bed Um, so I then recorded it because I thought it was funny then it sounded a bit wrong so I I deleted the recording I don't want to sleep with William he gets a bit sweaty at night Um, and then in the morning I'll just play what I had to put up with at seven in the morning here we go basically you don't get a break (laughs) with kids let's hear her tummy rubbed. They were noisy. <laughs> all I could hear was silence. <laughs> God, are you all right? How did you cope? <laughs> got worse oh, after that. You know what? You just soldier on. <laughs> <laughs> they got worse after a that. Child Maybe I'm just made... really impatient. Like, <clears throat> I think a child breathing. Yeah, a child <laughs> coughed in bed at 7am. I am trying <laughs> to sleep. Hey, I'm not good in the morning. <laughs> it was affecting my mental health, let's put it that way. I mean, they're full on, aren't they? Yeah. I just ended up plonking Transformers in front of them. Mm. Also, here's the thing, I will link this back to mental health. When my mental health wasn't so good, mm. I always thought, I don't know if I'll be able to have kids. Because mm. I thought, I can't be around kids and be like anxious mm-hmm. or be depressed. No. So I'd be interested to hear from people yes. how it has been if they aren't having the best time and they've got to get on with having kids does it help does it hinder call in to 0800 welcome to women's hour and now the play tina and john have not been getting on well oh tina the chickens have been squabbling again (laughs) they always have a play don't they i don't understand that's just the archers i can't even begin on the archers i'm obsessed it's worrying really yeah i think i'm following my mother onto the forums it's really worried i think we're arguing with each other really (laughs) yeah I think you'll find that Eddie Grundy actually came was with Clary first. Really, I didn't Annabelle know she... Young, oh 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 three. What do you think she is? Oh, she's probably um, like Jill Archer forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She gets really feisty on forums. Does she? I didn't know yeah. she was a forum user. 
She's on Daxent forums. How could you be on a Daxent forum and be nasty about a Daxent? Um, I've gone off topic. Mental health week. Yeah, so we're going to focus on mental health this week. Not that it is mental health week, but we were on LBC yesterday and they asked us on because they're doing their mental health week. Yeah, it was interesting. I was very... Um, thrilled to be asked. Yeah, I was thrilled to be asked and talk about mental health from an LGBT perspective. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I feel like, and I think John Grant said it, and Matthew as well in the upcoming interview, that LGBT people shouldn't talk about their mental health because then it gives more ammunition yes. to the haters who are like, ah, knew you were defunct. I think mental health still has a stigma because it's associated with the higher echelons of things like psychosis. And they're seen as this sliding scale with which are all linked. And actually, they're not. And it should be viewed as going like going to the gym, just looking after your mental well-being. And there's this company called Sanctus, let me read their mission. Sanctus.io, people. Sorry about the planes going overhead. My house is under a flight path. Um, Estate agent didn't mention that. No. Our I wondered did he, why he asked me to wear headphones. <laughs> I prefer to, to do it in silence. <laughs> so Sanctus say, our mission is to change the perception of mental health. We see a world where people view mental health like physical health and we want to put the first mental health gym on the high street. Oh my Lord, what a great idea. What about calling it mind health? Is that better than mental? Because mental means like, oh, you're going mental. But I think mental health is the new gay. That people won't talk about it. If you say that you are, people don't engage further. They don't understand it. They think you're from some other... You know, a lot of parallels between that. How mental health is perceived and how being gay was perceived. Yes, I think you're right. There's still a lot of shame with it. People want to shut it down. Or people want to fix it immediately. Mm. You know, rather than just listen... So, you know, I might just want to say, I'm, I'm just really frustrated. You know, certain people I know in my life will go, oh, that's all right, and try and fix it. And I'm like, I don't need it fixing. I just want you to listen. The power of someone just cleanly listening is amazing. Can I give you a brilliant tip that my sister's friend gave her? When you talk to a member of your family and you want to share a problem, you can say this is either, this is either a one, a two or a three conversation one is, I just want to tell you it, and I don't want to hear feedback. Two is, I want you to feedback, or and three is, I need your advice. And so they label it when they speak. Because sometimes you just want to moan, or sometimes yes. you just want to vent, and you don't need someone to go, well, if you hadn't dot, 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 which is what families do to each other, yeah. apparently yes. it's changed her relationship with her mother. That's really interesting. And it's reminded me, the other day, I was upset about something, I just had a tough day, and... I wanted to cry and the person said to me don't cry and that's really interesting and I hear that with parents with their kids don't cry it's like no no if you want to cry cry you know but you know what that's to do with is it Sylvia Plath that um to have a child is to watch your heart ripped from your chest and walk about on the street saying don't cry is is they're verbalizing their concern right but you take it as an instruction and that's right because it is an instruction but you know what I mean that's where it becomes complicated well that's why I think it's so important to think of codependency because I think of my own codependency and it's very hard with kids because they do you know my nephews and nieces that can rip my heart out I want to fix them recognizing I can't fix them I can be there for them and present for them that's when we become truly supportive and great friends and great parents I mean it's like I want to cry now about the plane and now the police helicopter that's overhead but I won't no well maybe I will they're not going to catch us you do whatever you like thank you you want to have a little cry stop fucking hovering (laughs) we're talking about shame here 
Can anyone else feel the fervour in the room, Will? Can you feel it? Yes, I can. Uh-huh. Speak on. Pourquoi? It's time to ask Twitter. The people have spoken. And do you know what? I So we're talking about shame this week, and I think it's interesting. But I also think there's quite a funny side to shame. Yes, and there's a funny side to mental health. Oh my God, as someone that's been in a lot of residential treatment, I've literally got the funniest stories of my life. Really? From being in treatment. Mm. There are funny moments in the moments of despair. So we've been asking, what is your most embarrassing story? Because we've all felt that moment of shame that's actually quite funny. Yours being, William, splitting trousers? I split my trousers in a concert in Portugal. I was thrusting towards this poor woman and I decided to wear these trousers with no pants. And as I thrusted, I felt a rush of air into my crutch area and the woman's face turned from delight to complete horror. Really? Yeah. I basically waved my penis in front of her face. Did you? Yeah, and then I had and to complete the gig. People? There weren't masses there. It was a corporate. Um, <laughs> it was a corporate for Alfa Romeo. Um, they were Italian. They Love didn't know that. who I was. Um, they thought we were getting Demis Roussel. Um, and I had, to f- I had to complete the concert with a towel wrapped around my waist. <laughs> Did you really? Yeah. Oh, my God. It was really embarrassing. Whoa. I'm like, then stupidly, I said to my manager, do you think no one noticed? She was like, babe, the whole room noticed. Wow. Yes, embarrassing stories. What did they say on Twitter? Jodie Leach, accidentally leaving door to Portaloo unlocked and it opening while I was sat down at Glastonbury in front of a thousand fans and Cheryl Crow. <laughs> Waiting uh. at traffic lights for a lift and mistaken mate's car jumped in with all my bags <laughs> to a very shocked woman who was not my mate. <laughs> so that's Julie watches the name. My mum's friend did that. She asked for her husband to come and collect her in town and this car that was exactly the same as her pulled up. She opened the back door, threw all the shopping in, opened the front door, jumped in and was like, hi, babe. And this guy was like, who are you? It wasn't her husband. So funny. Thought I had sent an amorous text to my boyfriend but went to the plumber by mistake, Sean Sullivan. (laughs) Every cloud. (laughs) Well, When I worked at MTV, I sent a group message round to like a load of people I worked with going, hi, I've got a spare room in my flat. It's X hundred a month. Let me know if any of you are looking. And one person replied, they thought they replied to me, (laughs) but they replied all going... (laughs) Oh, you've put X on here. You really must be scraping the barrel, Chris. <laughs> no. Yeah. Oh, my God. Andrew Mills, at seven years old, discovering my teacher arguing with my mum in our living room as my mum was having an affair with my teacher's husband. That's just hell. That's, that's Jeremy Kyle slash Grange Hill. Yes. That's unbelievable. Apparently at my old school, just after I left, there's an athletics track and then there's a long drive long road that goes alongside the sort of back stretch of the athletics oh, track yeah, yeah. yeah so the guy's commentating going oh and you know richard wilson's uh, doing well for this house and now so and so's coming out and oh my god mrs smith is running down the drive oh after mrs brown mrs smith's got a kitchen knife oh they're overtaking no. the blucher house and someone had found out that the husband had been having an affair so literally they were running down the drive after each other really? in the middle of athletics day and winning. <laughs> <laughs> Dip for the finish. Promise you it happened. And more of our embarrassing moments from you guys coming up later. Yeah, I love this. 
Now, this is when Chris and myself went to see Matthew Todd at the Attitude headquarters, no less. That's the one I'm most proud of. Matthew was editor of Attitude magazine. Now he has written a book. It's called Straight Jacket, and it's a brilliant book. And it's sort of like, I think, a how-to guide to break through shame and how to beat it is probably the wrong word. But we started by talking about what it looks like when you start to work through some of that stuff. And it's a really hopeful and inspiring story. How does it feel when you start working through shame? I think it feels like like you're coming back to who you really are. I think it can remove pressure that you feel in terms of it, like tension and you know of that kind of high blood pressure feeling sometimes you get when you're really worked up. It would be constantly touching, you know, constantly sitting there at the meetings, you know, banging their feet or something, and this constant need to be chewing or smoking or chewing gum and and then to be watching porn or having sex or masturbating or work, whatever it may be, or going, I must go shopping, I must go this, or just constantly being negative or when someone says something, you want to judge them and, mm. oh, for God's sake, or being on Facebook. I think that's the way that, mm. that it comes out, actually, that kind of constant need to be contributing and then having a picture out there and being validated and then attacking other people and disagreeing with other people and then it goes on and on and on it's and everyone does it and it's and it's momentum, isn't it? You can't yeah, it still. builds and builds and builds. So I think when you start going through it and start being calm and centering yourself and calming down and I think all these other things help like yoga and mindfulness just to bring yourself always just back to yourself and just all that stuff just slowly starts to to dissipate and just starts to, to go but it's an ongoing thing you have to work at it painful painful yeah amazing mm. people have often have a thing when they first start doing it where people call it pink clouding where they just I think that it's overwhelming to suddenly realise it all and people kind of feel like they're you know on cloud nine for for a while they can get really ecstatic and sometimes they come back down to earth with a crash. But I mean, also, I would say I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychologist. People should always go to their GP and talk to talk to people. And there's all these different helplines. And there's gay okay, switchboard and the LGBT centre in Manchester and Samaritans. If you ever feel overwhelmed, always reach out and call people. Don't feel you can't. There's loads of people that are there to help you. And I think I've been to see switchboard, talk to them about the book, and maybe there will be more people calling than talking about this issue. I don't know. So um, I must say, reach out. I really personally want to say thank you oh, and I, I think that what people I really hope that what people get from it is what I've already been getting from it so I'm, I'm really grateful but I'm grateful to you too for talking about all your stuff because it's really you know when I first saw you talking about that stuff I was really surprised because it is brave especially and more so for you because you're famous and stuff and you know I think there's you were the first kind of I guess Maybe, um, I don't know what the word would be, but... Um, superstar icon. Superstar Please. icon, diva. <laughs> I don't know, but just someone that people felt very comfortable with, perhaps. And uh, I don't know, for, for, mm. for that generation, when you came out, it was really important, I think. And I think it's really, really important that you talked about all your stuff. And, you know, I think maybe people... Well, there's a record to sell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was, there was a new tour. Um, no, um, See, that was part really of it for me, and I thank you, and part of it was coming out of the shadows. I think when I spoke about my addiction with porn, I didn't use the best platform. Well, where was it? I can't remember. Was it? It, just, <laughs> yeah. it was through a porn film, if I remember. <laughs> um, it wasn't 
the best platform. And having said that, it was about acknowledging it. It was certainly a subconscious exercise of embracing the things that I was I was so ashamed about gay porn. Mm-hmm. And I would masturbate every night and I would feel so ashamed afterwards. And then actually saying it to someone else got rid of half the shame instantly. Why were you ashamed of watching porn, do you think? I was driven to it by shame in the first place because it would be a rush of adrenaline and endorphins and all that. Mm-hmm. So it could get it would alleviate those feelings of shame and loneliness that I would have at night, mm-hmm. particularly. So it was a way of sort of it was like a hit, mm-hmm. you know, to, like having an espresso or something. Mm-hmm. Immediately after I would ejaculate, I would go straight back to the loneliness mm-hmm. and the shame. Mm-hmm. So it would kind of intensify it. I would fulfill a sexual need, but I wouldn't be fulfilling an intimate need and the mm. need to actually yeah. feel love for someone, mm. feel secure, feel that they have love for me, feel a whole person and being good enough to be able to be in a relationship because I never thought I was good enough. I thought, God, I can't show someone the real me. So I always thought mm. I could never do Celebrity Big Brother, by the way. <laughs> so I thought, if people really get to see me, mm. it's game over. I mean, it would probably be game over. I was already doing the show, but, um, you know. I think you'd be great. You'd really, really do all the cooking. Oh, bless you. No, honestly, it's so tidy in the kitchen. God, you're such a good friend. Thank <laughs> you. Um, yeah, I feel quite teary now. Um, it's, it, I always thought people see the real me, they won't want that. They won't like that because I am inherently bad. Mm-hmm. I am inherently wrong. Mm-hmm. What a statement to make. You know, never say that to anyone else. And the shame I felt of gay porn is that it was, I felt wrong and I felt it was dirty. I don't feel porn is dirty. For me, it was because it was coming from a very sad, lonely, damaged place. Being deployed in the wrong way. Yeah. So that, that's why I felt ashamed of it. I don't now. Mm. And someone such as yourself highlighting publicly allows people to see it's, it's like a beacon. How did you get to wanting to write it? Well, when I first, when I, when I, I came to the office, it, I, I was editor of Attitude in 2008. And by 2010, I felt like, oh, my issues are quite common amongst my gay brethren. And I wanted to talk about it in Attitude, so I came and told a couple of members of staff. And, and we were all kind of a bit, well, I said, I want to write about it in the magazine. We were all a bit nervous about, you know, would we, would it go down well? Would people freak out at the idea of, of talking about this? But we wrote it in the magazine, and I had hundreds of emails and letters, more than we've ever had about anything. There was like, I think, one disagreed and two that weren't sure, and all the rest were absolutely positive. Oh my God, you're inside my head. I was crying when I read this. We need to talk about this more. This is totally my experience. So that was kind of overwhelming. We tried to set up a few groups which were supported. And then I started writing the book. It seems that there's there's lots of different levels of shame. There's society through the media piling it on. We're not born with shame. It's it's put on. I would imagine potentially family, however they interact with the idea of being gay or, you know, mm. sexually different? Well, I think maybe I subconsciously thought when I came out, started to realise there was a problem without even kind of really thinking about it. Just, I came out to a youth group when I was 16 and, you know, it was, I guess, was probably suicidal by that point and I found gay switchboard and, 
they gave me the number of this youth group. And the group was great in lots of ways. You know, I met my best friend there. I met a whole group of friends that I'm still friends with now. But there were also kind of, you know, a woman, a lesbian there, pulled me aside to be careful of this guy over there. He really likes chickens, as she put it. And there was another guy there who I used to like, used to always make a point of talking to me. And then um, he disappeared. And I said, where's he gone? And, and he'd, been, he'd gone to prison to some kind of child sex. And then I came out to the gay scene the first night. I went to a gay club after being really nervous of going with it. They used to go to this local gay club after the first night I went. Some girl was really, really, really horrible to me. And so there was quite a lot of that. And then I had my first relationship. And I was so needy and clingy. I used to quiz him about his sexual history. I obsessively thought that he would would leave me at any point. You know, why are you with me? And I used to kind of split up with him so that he would come back to see if he would still want to come back. It was utterly insane. And then I went to the next relationship after that, and that was a bit crazy too. And it just gave, I thought, oh look, there's a pattern here. Rings a few bells. Rings a few bells. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I suddenly thought, oh, we're all like that. Um, and we just, and then I just started to become aware of this messiness around, you know, and this kind of emotional messiness. And I had a friend who I remember saying to me at one point, "I'm a piece of shit. I'm a total piece of shit. I'm definitely going to catch HIV. I deserve it." And of course, I mm. didn't catch HIV. And at that time, thinking, oh. Oh my God, what, what on earth is that about? And, and then didn't really think about it. And there was this narrative, and I was very much part of it as a, as a, as a kid of, of gay pride. You know, I used to start going to pride and I loved it. I was obsessed with it. It was the one day of the year where, you know, you could hold hands, I could be with my friends. Um, I used to make tapes for all my friends. Like, it was the day the drag queens revolted in 1969 and put all these songs <laughs> together. And I, I, I mean, it was, it was mental because I had mental. And I used to make like 20 tapes and give them to my friends and I thought it was a bit strange. Um, so, and then what I, year was this? When would this be? This would have been maybe, uh, I guess, 94, 95 by that point. Um, and I was volunteering at Stonewall when I was finishing my degree. And that was amazing. I used to work on the, the equality shows. And as a kid who grew up wanting to be an actor and a pop singer and wanted to be famous... You know, I was totally obsessed with being, I used to perform at school and used to dress up as Madonna and be completely, utterly bonkers. So I just thought that was me. And I think that's a very, mm. this is a quite important point in the whole thing that I think when we have these troubles or whatever it may be, we just think that's me, that's who I am as an individual. And then you see this image of all these other gay people having an amazing time and you think, oh my God, I don't fit in and everyone mm. else is do, doing the gay thing much better mm. than, than I am. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You had awareness 
that there was there's a lot of objectiveness to notice that. I think probably now I think I had more awareness than I did. I mean, I think these things were just very confusing. So lots of different confusing things. And I remember I did go through a phase of. I remember one time in Clapham outside the cinema, I talked to my best friends saying. You know what? I think it's awful being gay. It's terrible. Gay people can't fall in love. It's not possible. We don't know anyone who can do it. And oh my god, I'm going to kill myself. And and also when I when I was young, when I came out, I was very. I read all this stuff in the press. Gays are disgusting. Gays can't have relationships. Gays can't love. Gays call cool, cool cool the sun. Maybe that was really? a great place. Yeah. And so I had this narrative in my head of I'm not going to be like these gays. I'm going to find a boyfriend, move away, and just be nice and good. Be a good mm-hmm. day. Um, and I started to, and then I started to realise I wasn't doing that. And I started to started on the whole casual sex thing because two two or three relationships hadn't worked. And then that was like pouring petrol on the fire. And once I was off, I couldn't stop. And I went ran into a really compulsive pattern of having sex with people. But it was it was draining and didn't make me feel good about myself. I didn't feel I was necessarily treating people very well. So they certainly most of them weren't treating me very well. It's very cold. That phrase I use in the book, which is a recovery phrase, looking for warmth in cold places, mm. really struck a chord with me when I heard that phrase because that's been a lot of my story. I think. Oh, and then the key thing I think, which I really relate to, is not feeling good enough gay. Yeah, I never felt good enough gay. Mm-hmm. Never. I always felt everyone was doing it better. But that's yeah. so and funny, I don't think people it? talk about that. Yeah, but even that. someone like you who, like, at the time, you were, like, king of the gays in a way. Do you know what I mean? I, mean, I remember, you know, people were so excited to have this person out there like you and high profile and all the rest of it. And, and I guess you, one would imagine that the editor of a best-selling gay magazine mm. would be a... Embracing of the whole... A very, you know, very good... Gay, basically. Yeah, I, I mean, happy I, I and think, secure and all those kind of things. Going to the point out, Grace, your, your foot is actually against my shin. <laughs> <laughs> Don't make me feel shame. Not only is it hurting, I, I feel it's quite inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> Got to get it where you can. Um, I'm really interested in when you discovered the word shame and how, was there a moment when it then all came together? Was it light bulb? Was it like, ah! So I went into recovery and I met a gay therapist after years of seeing a mainstream therapist who had not a clue how to help me or to talk about the gay stuff. And this therapist, a guy called David Smallwood, said to me, well, of course you feel all these terrible things. You're gay. And that was such a slap in the face. I'm so confronted that someone would say that. And then he went on to explain that it wasn't the fact, that my gayness, but the fact that because I was gay, it would have meant that I would have grown up in shame, being shamed by society, being shamed by family and friends and, you know, the gay scene and gay culture and being around a lot of other shamed people and all of this stuff that becomes this big snowball of of nightmarishness. And that was a really confrontational thing to say, but it was such a relief. It was such, it was like someone taking the kind of the steam thing off, just letting the steam out, just go, oh, Yes, because that's what I, I had come to kind of think, but I didn't really understand the word shame. I would never have used that word at that point. What does it actually mean? <clears throat> I think it means when, um, when, you, when you essentially come to believe that you are bad. And so many people have heard say, I felt all wrong. As in the book, he says, I felt all wrong. And just feeling like, I used to, I remember saying to my mum and dad once on Christmas Day, I can't believe you can't even, I can't believe that you're even looking at me over the table. I'm just a freak and I'm ugly and I'm this and I'm that. You know, 
that feeling of not almost like not being a human being, mm. not being you know being from somewhere else and not fitting in. Sinead O'Connor song where she says she's not from this place. Is it um, an inherent belief system? No. I think I think I explain the book as being your fight or flight system perceiving a threat which we are programmed to escape from or attack, but it going wrong and thinking that you are the threat. Some something in this system perceives you are the threat, so it's attacking you, getting away from you. You are wrong. You are the thing to be escaped. Get away from you in any way in any way that you can. So when this therapist, your therapist, said. Well, of course, because you're gay. Yeah, it was just a relief to have someone say that, because I think I, I and the gay movement and gay media and the gay, everything gay has always been... It's great being gay. And when you see people flinging around the word, the term self-loathing at people, attacking people, oh, he's just a self-loathing this, he's a self-loathing that. And you see these kind of Republican politicians who are caught in a toilet with a rent boy. Yeah. Self-loathing, we all yeah, attack yeah, them. And yeah. I understand that, because I, I have done that. I hate them, and you know, hate anti-gay politicians and hypocrites. But actually, what that is is a shamed person who's grown up feeling awful about themselves. You know, it's, it's, it's understandable that people are so shamed. And I think that's what we need to get to a place where we're not shaming people for feeling ashamed about their yeah. sexuality mm, yeah. because it's perfectly logical after growing up the way we all have. Mm. And how does one go about disseminating one's behaviours and history and to then decompress that shame and resolve it? Well, I think acknowledging it and talking about it and going into any kind of therapy from people who with therapists who understand shame is really important or you know there's authors like Brené Brown who are really great on it and John Bradshaw for me I think 12-step groups are great because they do a whole bunch of things at the same time like they re-socialize you with people they're free you can go to if you need them and I know lots of people do you know, get into really terrible places where they feel they need to go to 10 a day sometimes. I mean, that's an extreme example. But the point is that they're there if you need them to hold you. You get to start to talk, you get to listen, you get to empathise with people. And I think it's the, the shame only thrives in, in with secrecy where you're, it's all hidden. So the, the most important thing is to talk about it and to tell other people and that you start to just kind of wear the, the shame away just by having other people acknowledge you and what you've been through and maybe things that you've done that you feel ashamed about and who then say that's no big deal I've done it too who cares still you're still a great and valuable person but it's a big job you know it's a big thing you know I've been working on it for years now and it's you know getting better for sure and my life is transformed and it's not quite where I would want it to be just yet but Definitely, definitely a hundred times better than it was. I remember someone <coughs> saying to me, a chap called Randy Berlin that runs workshops with survivors. When I first came to shame to recognise it in myself, I said, well, how long is this going to take, Randy, <laughs> on a Skype session? You know, because I was like, I've got things to do. Um, <laughs> I've got 20 minutes. You know what I mean? I was like, well, and he said, well, how old are you? I was 32 at the time. Um, he goes, well, that's 32 years of shame being built up, so it's not going to happen overnight. And I thought, oh, crikey, here we go. And as someone that has worked on that in, in specific to being gay, did take a long time through a variety of, of things. And I really relate to you saying that sort of shame 
thrives in secrecy, mm. dark places. And, and the weird bind that it seems to me is that shame, if when I felt ashamed, the last thing I want to do is open up to a friend, open mm. up to when I did group therapy, say that I feel it mm. because it's the thing that's holding me back. I think it's a very brave thing to... Oh, my God. And, and is, yeah. is that the binding thing? Is that why do you think it, it's specific to gay shame that people haven't... It hasn't been banded around more as a term? Well, I guess we've been attacked for so long, haven't we? There's been so much hostility and absolute hatred, and it's still around now, especially in America, and then you go into a whole other realm in other countries where it's still illegal and you could be killed and God knows what... So we've been attacked so much, so we've been doing the opposite. And it's interesting, pride, I guess, being in some way the opposite of shame. So there's, so there's been some subconscious awareness, about, I suppose, for that very notion of gay pride. But pride is just be, be almost to the point where I think gay pride has become a bit oppressive because there's no room to talk about. It has felt like there's no room to talk about it. Like it's considered to be like you're letting the side down if you're talking about shame. And, you know, I've been there waving gay pride flags myself, and that's been really helpful. But then also it made me feel bad again when, you know, two days after gay pride, I felt terrible again. Has there been resistance? Has there been resistance? It certainly feels like there's been resistance. To to things that you have said. There's been a few voices, like bloggers and things like that, who've who've kind of of maybe slightly old-fashioned bloggers. I think there is a group of people who are hurt, damaged like us, but have layered on layers of defensiveness and protections. I think a lot of our adult lives becomes about keeping away from that pain, just getting away from it. So being maybe drinking or having sex or being bitchy or judgmental or sometimes I think people go into politics in fact as a way you know getting some power and you know I hear you I hear you can't go into Smith's without buying three books they still do it all the time for those offers I buy three books I put them on my shelf and never Never read them and then take them to Opsam a year later it's insane so I think there is some resistance but I think this stuff is rising to the surface and I think probably for the gay men in London I think the drugs are almost like something they've sprinkled onto us that is literally bringing it up because mm. you can't get away from it. And I think people are becoming really aware there's a serious problem and self-destructiveness is, is really up there at the moment. And when you say drugs, are you in relation to things like chemsex? Chemsex, yeah, crystal meth and yeah. chill-outs and G. I mean, somebody, we knew somebody two weeks ago died from a G overdose. And they're very hard to get a grip on because people don't want to, families and friends don't want to talk about it because it's, it's considered to be shameful, yeah. ironically. And there's a stigma about people dying from drugs overdoses, so families won't be honest about that. And I, I totally understand that, but I really want, it's really important that people are honest about it because how can we deal with it if we can't accept there's a problem? There's a few bloggers and things who will be so, you know, saying, oh, you're being anti-drugs and you're being very conservative. But it's not about that. It's not about being anti-drugs. It's just about the anti-people dying. Like I remember, you know, I came out as, you know, a pop star and we were talking earlier, you know, editor of Attitude magazine, one would think, why would there be any gay You've got there? it all. I never dealt with it, so I built this kind of mm-hmm. whole shell, but I was very empty inside. And I certainly, it was so painful to address that shame. Is that a fundamental thing that prevents people from wanting to go there? I think it's the bravest thing anyone can do to look at those issues. 
same for, exactly the same for straight people. You know, there's millions of reasons why you can be shamed. You know, through divorce and being feeling that your family is breaking up and poverty. I think that's a massive cause of shame for people, who, kids who feel somehow it's their fault that they don't have the things in this kind of consumerist society we have. Um, but but I think yeah, we spend our whole lives running away from that, building up personas to get away from that. So to drop all that stuff and to look at the real problem is terrifying, painful, but ultimately fulfilling and amazing and you, it's the biggest gift you can ever give to yourself and I think people think they can't get through it but you, you can and there's support. It is painful, it is scary, but it's, it's, it's the best thing you can ever do. In kind of people spend their whole lives not addressing it as well. I mean, lots mm. of people, you know, of all different types, you know, will literally spend their whole lives bitter and angry. I mean, I think that's what that is when you see people like that. That's, that's all that is. That's just internalised emotions and feelings and not being able to be vulnerable and be who you really want to be. You can end up these crotchety, angry, bitchy, nasty people. And I've had mo- definitely had moments of that. How did you then go about writing the book? I think it's a seminal work and people will look back on it if they're not already and see it as something that's quite defining. Because it's such a huge topic. Yeah. Is it hard to edit? Yeah, it was really hard to edit and I had a really good editor who had to kind of put a cold flannel on my forehead <laughs> and just say, calm down. You sound a bit angry at this mm. <laughs> 50,000 words. Um, so um, yeah, it was really difficult. And it was, you know, I went to a, a, a gay agent first to try and pitch it to him, and 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 he didn't take kindly to the whole concept. I don't think. Mm. And then it was a straight a- agent that I came across who I just was talking to through work actually, and said, "Oh, I've got this idea for this book. It's really important, I think." And he was fantastic, so I owe him so much. And I kept missing the deadline because it was so painful. I spent days and days and days in this coffee shop that I wrote in with tears streaming down my face, being really aware, A, that it was important and it needed to be out there and I don't know if I can finish it because it was just so painful to write and and interviewing people whose kids had killed themselves, that was utterly horrendous and yeah, loads of times I didn't want to carry on with it because it was too much and I thought I'd be attacked for for saying it, which was upsetting and made me but I think, you know, I'm, I'm very worried that, you know, that, that I was saying things that, that people feel, some people feel you couldn't say. Saying that, the reaction's been great so far. But and also, I don't, I also, I was very aware, I, you know, I don't want to present this kind of terribly depressing idea that it's awful being gay and everyone's miserable and dropping down dead like flies. Well, is, is that the sense that now there is a sense of hope? It's not just, you are like that, that's the way you're going to be. How do you see the way that we can limit, if not exterminate, gay shame? Well, I think the school stuff is probably the most important, just for, you know, to have anti-bullying policies and to be more like to be proactive. I went to the Brit school and they have this amazing system where you can email this, I don't know if she was a teacher or just a person that was there at the school, or you could email her and talk to her about your issues and once whatever those issues may be for all of the students. I think once a fortnight they had a, a lunch meeting that was in a different place every time, which was anonymous, for LGBT students who could just come to meet each other and uh, had another group for LGBT and supportive students who may not be LGBT just to come and hang out and talk about these issues and have discussion groups and all the rest of it. So those kind of things are incredibly important. I think ultimately the biggest thing, I mean, the sense of community would be so important 
for all of us. I think having community centres, which I talk about in the book, a place where we can meet and, and go out and connect with other gay people where it isn't about alcohol and drugs or trying to pick people up. Because I think when people do that, and there's nothing wrong with that, but, but without having that sense of expectation of, oh, I need to look great, and, you know, am I attractive? Is this person attractive? Is this person judging me? Where we can, where we can just meet each other and be around each other. And, and also, you know, to have therapy and support groups. I run this group, Change of Scene, with my friend Simon Marks. Which is the one that you started in? Yeah, in Dean Street. Street. And we never knew whether people would want to come to it or not. The idea was for people who maybe might have some feelings of things not being completely right but didn't feel ready enough to commit to going to recovery groups or therapy or whatever it was because it's quite a big leap to just accept that you maybe need to, to go to these groups. Um, so we had these discussion groups where people would come in, there'd be a different topic every month. So it might one month it was grinder, it might be an eating disorder, it might be alcohol, it might be porn, it might be relationships. And we just have a speaker and then everyone just shares back and you don't have to speak, you can just listen if you want. And, you know, the first one's a lot of people and then a smaller amount of people for the next two, but then suddenly it just exploded and people were talking about it. And we, we did one on loneliness. Loneliness has been something which we've the gay community has kind of really rejected. You know, that we laughed at this idea that, you know, in this day and age you can be a gay man and be lonely. But we had people sitting on the floor, on every space on the floor, on the this kitchen fittings, people queuing up all around the, all the stairs to get in. We had to turn people away. It was incredible, like a film. Was yeah, it was. It was amazing, and it was a real sense of oh my god, there's something happening here that we're acknowledging this, and that all these people are here, and there's a problem, and we can do something about it. And you always get someone getting a bit teary in 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 the meetings, saying, "I've never sat and talked to other gay men before," because so much of our experience is in bars and clubs, and you know, am I looking good? I'm wearing nice clothes, and I might pick somebody up, and I might go home with them, and then feel really disappointed when they never call me again, and all that kind of thing. To actually have conversations with people and see people, it's incredible to actually see other gay men as real human beings. How do you feel having written the book? I'm really excited. I'm really overwhelmed that you know people like you are saying nice things, and I'm just excited that about the possibility of talking to people who maybe want to have that conversation and trying to change things and it feels like all the stars are aligning like all my time at Attitude and all my entire life really all this experience is kind of built up to this mm. moment where I can put hopefully put something meaningful out that maybe will help people because I wish someone had talked about this stuff when I was younger because it would have saved me 20 years of you know risking my health and sanity so I hope it will have a positive effect <laughs> We'd love to know what you thought about that conversation. There's a lot of big topics in there. And I think hearing what Matthew said and his take on the whole thing, I found very helpful and I hope you guys did too. So please get in touch. We'll discuss your feedback in our Homo Sapiens Extra show every Friday. Tweet at Will Young using the hashtag Homo Sapiens or you can email us at hello at homosapienspodcast.com and we'd love to hear from you. And please rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. And don't forget, we'll choose our review of the week on Homo Sapiens Extra. And you could win the exclusive Homo Sapiens t-shirt. Hey, I've got a confession to make. I've broken the rules. And this is going to open a barrier that shouldn't oh, happen. Lordy, what have you done? There's some male doctors at my friend's hospital and they are obsessed with the show. Hello, everybody. And they asked for a t-shirt and I said yes.
I know. Will's just thrown his cigarettes on the floor. A barrage. There will be a barrage. Well, since we're doing confessions, I also have a confession. Go on. I haven't sent any of the t-shirts, but... I know Chris has just dumped his phone on the table, but what? I know. But also, it's because I don't have many clean clothes, so I just keep on wearing the t-shirts. This is exactly why I didn't give you the t-shirts in the first place. I know, but it's because I sweat so much. Only white looks good. Would you like to say sorry to our winners and our listeners? Um, I'm really sorry, uh, listeners, that I have not sent the t-shirts out. It's because I'm not very good with my laundry, but I promise. They don't want a second-hand t-shirt. They wanted the one that was in the past. <laughs> but I promise you will be getting sweat marks. You will be getting spaghetti bolognese. You will be getting a genuine used <laughs> t-shirt. No, I'm going to interject there. I, guys, I will order some more. So I'm going to post all these t-shirts. No, you're not. I'm going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Ow! That's throwing a tantrum like a orangutan. <laughs> My experience of mental health has been anxiety. So I've had problems with anxiety, feeling like I'm falling through the floor. The doctor gave me some diazepam, haven't looked back since. But mindfulness has helped me. What I was going to ask is, what tools have you ever found helpful with mental well-being that has made things change for the positive? Things that have really helped me, mindfulness, noticing, so at least I can take a step back and go, oh, that's interesting. I want, you know, my body's feeling like it wants to jump off a cliff it's so scared and exercise Mm. really good particularly for me i've noticed exercise i need to get because a lot of stuff we have stored in us matthew talks about it is fight or flight you know which can actually which is a primary thing shame can be can be secondary Mm. so getting rid of all that fight or flight energy you know Mm. is just it's i always feel good after doing exercise mm. eight minute abs on youtube um really yeah it's I gotta mean, be a he, run for me he's see i can't do that because of my um agoraphobia oh yes i know treadmill mm, treadmill yes well i walk the dogs on a treadmill rotor skating no problem mm. um and i think talking mm. biggest thing is sharing groups matthew talks about 12 steps it doesn't just have to be um, 12 steps there's lgbt groups uh, they can be for specific gay women gay men or they can be all mixed i think going on courses therapy mm. um trying loads of different things singing dancing <coughs> yoga for me the biggest thing any kind of group interaction is really good because the thing is to isolate but actually the better thing to do is to interact with people who you feel safe with Earlier on, we were we were talking about um, embar- what were we talking about? Embarrassing moments, and oh. people tweeted in. Well, I think one of my most embarrassing moments I've spoken about before on this podcast is when I <laughs> I've just I had to. I've just mimed something to Chris. He's mimed something to me I that I now have to share. Uh, me and my sister moved to, to a house together years ago. And I woke up. I don't know what. I must have been out the night before, perhaps. You know, and you wake up and you need to go for not a number one or number two. You're like, I've got to go. And so I ran downstairs, tried to go into the bathroom. My sister was in there having a shower. A sibling thing. No sibling's going to get out of the bathroom for you, no matter how nicely you are. No. So she was like, I'm in the shower. Just fuck off. And I was like, I really need to go. Like, fuck off or whatever. So I was like, well... Either I go in my box shorts standing right here or I need to take some precautionary measures. So I went into the kitchen, got a plastic bag, walked back up into my bedroom, put the plastic bag on my little marble fireplace because that felt like the closest thing I could find. <laughs> the closest thing I could find to a toilet. 
a makeshift toilet and I did a shit in a plastic Sainsbury's bag in my own bedroom, eight in the morning on a Thursday. I just think that is so funny. And can I say what's coming up for me? Because also in Cornwall, it's reminded me, I think I told you, cool. texted you, I was looking around houses oh, in yeah, Cornwall yeah. and I desperately needed the loo. Mm. And I thought I can't go and take a dump in someone's house that I'm viewing. You can't because they smell it. I really wanted to do it. I was like, oh, I just had to test out the bathroom. But also I like to have a long poo. So mm. I thought 10 minutes later, I can't have Ben, the estate agent from, Louis, from Lewis, Lewis and Horton <laughs> getting back into his mini. And I'm yeah. like, I'll just see you outside. I'll have yeah. another look around. Yeah. And we didn't do that thing of location, location, location when we went to a gastropub to discuss it. <laughs> We, could we went for that. a swim in the sea instead. Did you? <laughs> no. <laughs> Paul Ben's like, I've got to go back to the office. I said, I really like a little breaststroke and a chat, if that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think they'd take 350? Yeah. Do you think they'll leave the jacuzzi bath? Ben, you didn't say you couldn't swim. <laughs> I had a poo in the sea instead. Yeah. yeah. Oh, quick, let's move away from here. Come on, oh, Ben. Quick, Lilo. front crawl. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, I went off the point. Embarrassing moments. These are all very good replies. Thank you very much. Tanya Ferk Stevens telling a friend how fit our delivery guy was and then turning around to be literally nose to nose with him. <gasps> no. no, that's funny. Jane underscore Schofield, my pee skirt falling off in the school sports day. <laughs> Will race. No. I was eight. Remember it like it was yesterday. We'll have to process that. Susie says, at my son's graduation, my gran rummaged in her bag and produced tissue-wrapped chips for our lunch and offered to the people next to us. That's amazing. I love that. See, now I think Keep I'd it real. So proud. Yeah. Um, We've spoken about Bake Off. Did you watch no. it? Who's on Bake Off? Oh, Sandy Togsvig is on Bake Off. <laughs> oh, Sandy. Stay with me. Stay with me. I just love, she's got new hair. We have, She's yeah. got new hair. She looks great. She um, does look great. And I was just watching her and I was just imagining that she was with us you know what i mean mm. i was willing her to come over a over a muffin um <laughs> i just thought come on come on sandy come to us come hither come well, hither come hither please come and do our podcast do you know what quite a few people have been tweeting that we would be better presenting bake-off there's been a few tweets well, may I just share something with you as I that I think you know. Speak on different. Well, you know I wanted to put myself in the mix for it. Imagine if it'd been me and Sandy. Ugh. Or me and Noel. Yeah, or you and Noel, yeah. of course. Um, mm-hmm. I did Bake Off for Comic Relief. You did? And yeah. how did you do? Uh, I came last. I made a Heinz tomato soup cupcakes. and I did almost you? Yeah, I almost poisoned Mary Berry because I put, I think it was, I box hedge clippings on the, to decorate them. And... Um, the producer had to Google and they found out that they were poisonous. <clears throat> and you were going to feed that to Mary Berry? Yeah, not on purpose. <clears throat> I hastened to add. Can I just draw a tally line between the fact that you wanted to host Bake Off and that you tried to poison one of the Bake Off hosts? <laughs> I thought I was going to get a clean slate. If there's anyone from any of the emergency services listening, <laughs> um, can they come down and help me with a citizen's arrest? Because you just tried to kill a national Shush, treasure. I'm about to feed you a hyacinth. <laughs> What's for lunch? Hyacinth and hummus, yeah. anyone? <laughs> One more thing before we go. I must tell you, we are very proud to be speaking at the London Podcast Festival on Saturday the 16th of September and we're doing a sort of live version of the podcast in conversation. Me and Will 
I don't want to raise hopes, but we might be selling t-shirts and we'd love you guys to come down. So King's Place, it's by King's Cross Station. If you head to kingsplace.co.uk forward slash homo sapiens, you can buy a ticket. We would absolutely love to see you there. Well, I've had a lot of fun. Please get in touch at Will Young with the hashtag Homo Sapiens and email us hello at homosapienspodcast.com because we want to hear from you. That's what makes this show what it is. And what's you this, guys? What's this going on underneath? It's oh. the beginning of a clattering of who's for this week's final tune. I don't. <laughs> I was thinking Black Beauty. Oh. I was going tribal. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Homo sapiens. Homo sapiens. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Powered by Spirit Studios.